0: Dr. Amy Tiersten is an oncologist focused on women's issues. Her clinical focus, obviously, is breast cancer, as you will note from the conversation, but she also has insight on gynecological cancers. She's brilliant about sharing information on anti-tumor therapy. I found the conversation with her very enlightening. Her experience is extensive this is another referral from dr julia smith and i definitely know you will listen to this one more than once because it's so deep with so much information so please take the time to listen very closely to dr amy tierston Thank you very much Amy for spending some time with me. I'm thrilled to have very well respected doctors be a part of this program and I'm thrilled that you could be a part of it and I would love for you to give us a background on who you are, what you're doing, Mm -hmm. anything that you feel is important
1: to be part of this. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here and I, um, I am uh, Amy Tiersten. I am a professor of medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I am a medical oncologist whose focus throughout my career has been in primarily breast medical oncology but uh, gynecological malignancies as well. Um, I have a clinical practice up at Mount Sinai where I see patients and I also um, spend part of my time doing clinical trials and research and new drugs and um, new approaches to treatment and um, also do some teaching. And so I have a great passion for um, treating women and breast cancer and um, would love to share some of the exciting things, that, exciting and challenging things that are mm-hmm. going on in my field, so...
0: Well, I mean, I, I think one of the the big questions is what is going on in the field now, and what would be interesting for people that's not common knowledge, and mm-hmm. what do you see on the horizon?
1: There really is a revolution going on in all of oncology, and um, very much exemplified in the field of breast cancer, and that is a better understanding, increasing understanding that it's really the specific biology of the disease that determines prognosis and determines treatment. So breast cancer is actually several different uh, diseases, really, one of the most important aspects of this is that um, breast cancers have three possible receptors on the surface of the cell, Um, the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and then a protein called HER2NU. In the world of breast cancer, years ago, we really just thought about it in terms of very, in a coarse way, the stage was determined by the size of the cancer, or the number of involved lymph nodes, but now prognosis is much more about not an arbitrary cutoff of something as 1.9 or 2.1 centimeters, but what drives the disease, what feeds the cells. And so treatments are much more tailored to the specific types of breast cancer. And that allows us to be more targeted in terms of treatment. So, you know, years ago, we basically had chemotherapy as our weapon. If you think about it, chemotherapy is pretty coarse. You kill cancer cells, but you also kill a lot of normal cells along the way. And when therapies are more targeted to the specific biology of the cancer, we're able to avoid uh, damage to normal cells. So that's been a huge advance in my field. You know, one very exciting advance over the last number of years is that we understand in hormone-driven breast cancers that sometimes those cancers can be treated with anti-estrogen therapy alone and we can avoid chemotherapy. For so many women who received chemotherapy, we're actually able, by doing genomic profiling of the tumor itself. We have profiles that allow us to predict the patients who are really going to benefit from chemotherapy and avoid chemotherapy in approximately two-thirds of the women that we used to treat. You know, when I was training, if a woman had a cancer bigger than a centimeter, they got chemotherapy. And now one of my favorite parts of my job is to tell a woman that she does not need chemotherapy and can be served uh, by just targeted treatment to the estrogen receptor, for example.
0: What an is anti-estrogen? What is that?
1: So um, there are different ways of treating estrogen-driven cancer. There are certain medications. One is tamoxifen. That's a common drug that's used. That's a drug that actually interacts with the receptor. Interestingly, it blocks the receptor in breast cancer cells so that whatever estrogen is in your body can't get to those cells, and those cells are fed by estrogen. And it actually, so it's an anti-estrogen in breast cells, but it actually acts as an estrogen in other parts of the body. So in a postmenopausal woman, it actually helps act as an estrogen on the bone and promotes healthy bone, acts as an estrogen on the heart, and promotes a healthy cholesterol profile. So um, these are very interesting drugs. They are tremendously important in the, in the treatment of breast cancer. About two-thirds of breast cancers are hormone-driven so tamoxifen by blocking the receptor essentially starves the cells of estrogen and that's what they need to live on um, another very common form of anti-estrogen medication is a category of drugs which are known as aromatase inhibitors those are different from tamoxifen and that tamoxifen interacts with the receptor but doesn't change the amount of estrogen in a woman's body whereas the aromatase inhibitors are cutting off production of estrogen Mm -hmm. so it starves the cells in a different way these estrogen deprivation therapies can have a lot of side effects for women like
0: menopause
1: like menopausal type symptoms but thankfully over the last five years or so there has been great attention and clinical trials looking at ways to manage the side effects of these drugs so for example hot flashes are a common side effect of some of these medications. There was a recent trial that came out of our big national um, breast cancer symposium that happens in San Antonio annually, looking at a medication called oxybutanin, which is a drug that originally had been used and is still used to treat urinary incontinence, but it was found that at a baby, baby dose of this drug, it's really effective in treating hot flashes, and so since the wow. data came out in December, I've been using it in a lot of my oh, patients, in whom, in whom nothing helped hot flashes, wow. and, and they're really, really helped by this medication. And the name of it—that is oxybutynin—and it's, oxybutynin, and it's wow. used at a much lower dose than it's normally used for urinary incontinence. And that's pretty new data, December two thousand eighteen. No, yeah, that's super new. It's fantastic
0: amazing news yeah yeah now how do women find out about this
1: um you know it's it's in it's not so widely out there yet it's out in the breast cancer very specific breast cancer medical oncology um group but I don't think for example gynecologists are familiar with this literature yet yeah it's a it's amazing and um I mean, because those can be incredibly, um, incredibly unpleasant side yes. effects for people that disturb sleep, that just, oh, it, yeah. fun- you know, some people have terrible hot flashes, and, so and I've it, seen great yeah. results. And yeah. it
0: happens, you know, so randomly at any age. Right. Um, there's a girl here who's in her late 30s, and she said to me, I think... I don't know why but I'm always sweating. I can't wear makeup anymore. I'm sweating all the time and and she said, "Do you think I have, you know, hot flashes?" And I said, "Well, you know, it, this is so just random because everybody's so different. You never know. But, you know, it would be interesting if she tried this and if they went away, what, you know, a miracle."
1: I mean, there are women who are drenched multiple times throughout the night and have to get up and change their... But
0: even during meetings or in important situations, and it's just, it's so bad for self-esteem. Yes. It's it's just so um, debilitating emotionally, too, to have to... I mean, we can take a lot privately, but in front of other people it's it's so much more difficult to Absolutely. to deal with and and it's very hard to tell jokes when you're feeling like crap and and you're embarrassed you know you can't even do self-deprecating humor yeah. because it's a dig deep for
1: that one but that's such great news, that's really wonderful. And another thing actually that's clearly been shown to be helpful with flashes is acupuncture. So there's yes. an increasing body of literature that acupuncture yes. helps with a lot of these anti-estrogen side effects. Um, while it's wonderful that we're avoiding chemotherapy in so, in so many women, it, not to underestimate the effects that these drugs have. In some, I have patients in their 20s and 30s where I'm turning off all estrogen, and it's you know really difficult for these young women, and I'm very happy that there's attention and um, effort being put into ways of managing some of these side effects. Yeah, yeah definitely.
0: So I'm just still so excited about what you said. I just think that that's so wonderful. What else do you think is sort of on the horizon for women. What, what do you think, you know, work is being done on that may not be ready yet, but it's some, something positive to look forward to?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to look forward to. There are, um, again, this revolution in targeted therapy. Right. So it's understanding, not in terms of the receptors, because that's sort of a grosser concept, but on a deeper molecular level, understanding what certain pathways lead to abnormal cell growth and there's thousands of drugs that are very brilliantly developed that are effective therapies that are not chemotherapy that are targeted to specific molecular pathways. It's now pretty common in women who have advanced breast cancer to do genomic profiling of each woman's cancer and really try to tailor therapy based not just on receptors but on a deeper level. Cancer is really a series of acquired mutations. And so if you can do genomic sequencing of a patient's tumor, you can get a look at what mutations specifically are aberrant in this cancer and then pick drugs that may not necessarily even have been tested in breast cancer, but are specifically targeted to a mutation within a tumor and have great efficacy Mm -hmm. without a lot of side effects. The other exciting thing is, and this isn't all of oncology, it's a little newer to breast oncology, but immunotherapy, you may have heard about or read about, is really an exciting mm-hmm. thing that's happening. And that is another targeted therapy that, unlike chemotherapy, is basically allowing a patient's own immune system to Recognize cancer cells as different and fight them with the use of a woman's own immune system, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, cancer cells are very evil and smart, and they are able to put out signals that fool your immune system into being able to find them and recognize them as other. And so they put what's referred to as a checkpoint on your immune system, and the new category of medications are called checkpoint inhibitors, because they're actually antibodies to the checkpoint, Mm. unleash a woman's immune system, and specifically in a type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, which is a cancer that doesn't have any of those three receptors that we talked about, the estrogen, progesterone receptor, and the her 2 receptor. For triple negative breast cancer, that is advanced, meaning it has Um, spread to another part of the body Uh, a recent clinical trial that came out in the fall showed that combining an immunotherapy drug with chemotherapy significantly increases uh, the tumor shrinkage the time that that tumor shrinkage lasts and it's it's really exciting stuff
0: wow So, you know, in immunotherapy, you you reference the fact that the immune system is quite a powerful tool that we have. And my, you know, my whole reason for getting into this whole concept of of healthy lifestyle started um, in the early 80s when my friends were dying of AIDS. And it was basically because their immune systems were so compromised they couldn't fight anything off. And so I, my, the, the reason for me doing all of this was I needed to help find a solution for me to understand and so what are all the things that can build out the immune system. So having said that and talking about breast cancer, is there something that you would recommend that women should do to support the immune system for healthy breasts, is there? What are the things you know now? I, 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 this is not the answer I'm expecting from you, but my reference, which is very sort of minimal and not intelligent like yours. Mine is more of what to eat. So blueberries and walnuts together are great for breast health. So that's the kind of thing that I think about my diet, or telling other women, you know, I've done research on this and tastes great. Why don't you just put it in your diet? So, is there any tips? I tips,
1: women. There, there have been trials looking at food and looking at exercise. Probably the most impressive trials have have been looking at exercise mm-hmm. and exercise and. I don't know if this is mediated through the immune system, but it certainly might be. There are trials that show that in women who have had breast cancer, that regular exercise, and it doesn't have to be crazy Peloton, it could be something as minimal as walking for 30 minutes five days a week, dramatically reduces the risk of the breast cancer from coming back. In some studies, like a 30% risk reduction, as much as you see with some chemotherapy regimen. So. Exercise is clearly, and and maintaining a healthy weight is clearly, whether it's mediated by the immune system or not, is clearly one of the best um, thing a person can do and empower themselves to, to... to help fight breast cancer and to fight the breast cancer from coming back once it's happened. And so would that be preventative
0: also? Do you think it has a preventative aspect to it?
1: There's definitely data around maintaining a healthy weight and preventing breast cancer, and that might be through exercise partially, but the more powerful trials that have been out there that I've looked at have looked more at reducing the risk of a breast cancer from coming back in someone who's actually had a diagnosis of breast cancer. That in itself tells you that it can't hurt. Oh, it definitely can't hurt. And obesity in different age groups has clearly been shown to increase the risk of developing breast cancer. So you can infer that that, you know. But that's
0: an important conversation. And it's sort of a recurring one that I think is important that women think about that we're not talking about anorexia, we're not talking about being skinny to be gorgeous because that's not beauty, but being healthy is really the ultimate beauty, and we want to accept all different body types as beautiful, but not if it's bordering on the not healthy, and I think that it's important to have doctors say this and Julia said this earlier and I'm very grateful for it because it's almost uh, politically incorrect now to say that a big volume, thicker body is beautiful and we should accept it and I feel like if that body is going to kill you, we, we have to assist in preventing anything happening and that means maintaining a healthy weight and doing activities and, and I have to say whenever I work out when I work my upper body I tell myself when I'm doing push-ups that are just like, you know, I get to a certain number with the push-ups, the third round of 20, and I'm like, oh, my God, I think your breasts, this is good for your breasts. (laughs) It'll make them stand up and they'll be healthy. (laughs) Smiling, happy breasts.
1: It's amazing that you're able to do three sets of 20 push-ups. Trust me,
0: it's a sweat. It's, It's a real sweat.
1: Um, The other thing just that that you asked about in terms of diet, there's been lots of different studies that that have looked at diet. And again, more in my realm of women who have had breast cancer, there has been a large trial that showed that a moderately low-fat diet decreases the risk of recurrence. So more than cutting carbs or cutting sugar, which are also good things to think about, what really has been proven in a very large clinical trial in the breast cancer world is moderating fat moderately low fat, so that doesn't mean I hate to see people deprive themselves of, you know, everything is fine in moderation once in a while, and some people get very um, obsessive about it and really don't allow themselves to enjoy mm-hmm. a variety of things, but in general, obvious things like more chicken and fish than red meat, lots of fruits and vegetables, I think is a breast cancer, breast yeah. cancer healthy way of eating. So. Yeah, and
0: I think that there are different types of fats, like I consume Enormous amounts of olive oil. Yeah, um, and I, because I don't eat meat, and I and sort of I'm trying to get fats into my system because for my skin and just I want to be oiled. <laughs> I want to be greased up, and you know, Look amazing. So. And, but but uh, I do think that there are fats that you can consume and then there are fats that are just like, what's the point, That's not, not gonna be good.
1: Um, like red meat and butter and cream and those things. Yeah, yeah ice cream, <laughs> yeah. like yeah, yeah.
0: stop. <laughs> so, so I don't have those but I love olive oil and I make sure I have it every day and it just works and, and, and I think it's super helpful as you get older too. But um, one of the things that I haven't talked about today that I think you're, you, you're a good person to talk to about this is so breast health is important. We, we want to know, we want to make sure we're taking care of ourselves and we're visiting the doctor, doing it, the eating properly. But our you know self-image and self-esteem is so based on our feminine. From the time where little girls were told how pretty we are, or isn 't she pretty or she 's going to be so pretty or pretty yeah. pretty pretty and unfortunately it 's embedded it 's in it there 's a little gene that 's not going anywhere, no matter how evolved we get it 's still about pretty so now you 're faced with breast cancer and the conversation maybe of reconstructive surgery and all that's involved with that conversation. So I, to me, there's, there are two phases of it. One is you find out that you have a challenge and that you have to get through it and that's an awesome task. And then there's the recovery, the repair, the restoration, which is another phase of it. People sort of put it all together, but it really is two separate huge events. You're absolutely right about that. So the reconstructive part of it, the restorative part of it, what do
1: we need to know about that?
0: What is happening with that and what are the best? Practices.
1: Well, obviously the findings of, you know, in the 1980s that just removing the lump in combination with radiation therapy is equivalent to mastectomy for many patients in terms of long-term outcomes. So there's a, you know, um, many women are able to save their breasts and not undergo mastectomy. So that's a wonderful thing. And I'm um, very happy that that's been studied and is now a standard of care. In women who do have mastectomies, there's a range of different kind of reconstructive uh, procedures, uh, including what's sometimes done is uh, tissue expanders are placed at the time of mastectomy, and then they can be expanded by um, injecting material into the expander and then ultimately replacing those expanders with an implant. And there's also procedures that are done where a woman's own body fat, say from the um, stomach, creates breast tissue. These are big surgeries and these can be really uncomfortable things. And I think that there is also more women that I'm seeing. There's a greater acceptance. Some people just opting not to do any form of reconstruction and feeling good, comfortable with that, I think is also um, I think we're seeing more of that. Mm-hmm. I feel like some women feel that they didn't know going into reconstructive really how much it would entail, and that they might have made different choices if they were educated better about yeah. that. Yeah,
0: and the reconstruction takes time, and it's it's like sort of a series multiple of stages yeah. of
1: surgeries. Yeah.
0: So yeah, that's it's that a big in deal. itself is is just I a, 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 I think a big decision to make that most women don't really know that right. much they think okay I'll you know
1: so there's for, so much about I'm sorry to interrupt. there's yeah. so much about the physical um and femininity there's so much about it in terms of you know the patients I see and the conversation around um hair loss and loss of breasts and in some cases women have their ovaries removed and just all and then the anti-estrogen medication it's really, I think, a huge challenge in my field to address those issues and, and, you know, have people's quality of life, in addition to their quantity of life, be as, as wonderful as it can possibly be. And the other thing is that we now have the cold cap. Have you heard of this? No, this is basically is a very cold cap that's placed on the scalp during chemotherapy. It kind of constricts the blood vessels so that oh, the chemo doesn't get to the scalp. And uh, it's pretty effective in preventing hair loss, so it's fantastic that we can offer that to women now. We do offer that um, where I work at uh, Mount Sinai, and um, that's just been a huge advance. It works, it's probably around, I'd say, 70% of people keep enough hair that they don't need a wig, um, uh, and it's you know another major advance that I, that has been studied that I think is super important, and, yeah. And
0: that's- Put on when they're going through the Through the, the infusion,
1: yeah. right. So it's at the, at the infusion center okay. during and after oh. the infusion. So
0: Interesting. Yeah. So it's quite a process. What's the, the usual, and I'm sure individual, but the, you just found out and now you're past it. What's that usual period of time?
1: Is there a typical so, or... In talk. I guess we're talking about early-stage breast cancer yeah. then because more advanced yeah. breast cancer no, is chronic no. and there isn't really an end yeah. to it. Early-stage breast cancer can look lots of different ways. So it can, um, you know, generally either a lump is felt or uh, an abnormality is found on imaging. Um, a biopsy is performed, a core biopsy, to determine is this breast cancer and what subtype of breast cancer it is. Based on the subtype of breast cancer... Sometimes therapy is given before surgery actually to shrink the cancer down. That's commonly done in triple negative breast cancer which don't have the three receptors, and in hormone receptor negative cancers that express the HER2 protein. And the purpose of that is shrinking the cancer down before surgery to make the surgery sometimes more limited. We can um, take someone who was not a candidate for a lumpectomy and would have to have had a mastectomy, but if we're able to shrink Mm -hmm. the cancer down beforehand, we can turn people into lumpectomy candidates. In addition it's a way of seeing right in front of your eyes if the treatment's working. Whereas if someone has surgery first and then you're giving the treatment after, Mm. you're doing it based on trials that have shown efficacy, but you're not actually seeing in an individual person an in vivo assessment of how well the treatment is working. So generally, um, breast cancer is treated with three different specialists, there's the breast surgeon, there's the breast medical oncologist, there's a radiation oncologist who's sometimes involved. It's a really multidisciplinary discussion um, with more advanced uh, breast cancers or in patients who have uh, worrisome symptoms. Usually body scans are done to make sure that the cancer hasn't spread to any other part of the body. And, you know, treatment looks very different, whether chemotherapy is part of the picture or whether it's anti-estrogen therapy. Chemotherapy, if that's indicated in a specific situation, lasts anywhere from, you know, four to six months usually. And that can be, as I said, before or after surgery. And that's about managing the side effects. Again, chemotherapy is such a terrifying word for women that I really try to emphasize that it literally means thousands of different types of medications and what specifically you're looking at with these medications and spending a lot of time educating people and minimizing side effects. So we really try to keep a person's life as normal as possible. A lot of people are able to work. We have immune Mm -hmm. booster shots that we use. We we have the cold cap. We have also been a revolution in anti-nausea medications such that most women undergoing chemotherapy Mm -hmm. for breast cancer really don't have nausea anymore. So it's not just that treatment is more targeted is that we have much better supportive care so what I do now is compared to when I was in training it it changes every every year you know that's great and so then sometimes um, radiation therapy is part of the picture that usually is somewhere between a three to six week period after surgery can you
0: explain the difference between radiation and what it does to chemotherapy treatment and Absolutely. what
1: Absolutely. So radiation is a local therapy. It's sort of like, consider it like surgery. It's treating a specific area. And in breast cancer, for example, if someone has a lump removed, which is called a lumpectomy, they have radiation afterward to decrease the risk that the cancer would come back in that breast. It's a local therapy. It's a beam that's pointed to a specific area. Um, chemotherapy and antiestrogen therapy are what we call systemic therapies and so they travel throughout the whole body and they not only help with the breast itself but they um, kill any cancer cells that might be lurking anywhere in the, the body and so they're very important in terms of reducing the risk of a systemic recurrence or a distant metastasis and so they really play very different roles if a patient's breast cancer is hormonally driven, and that's about two thirds of breast cancer, we're usually looking at somewhere between five to 10 years of anti-estrogen medication, which are daily medications. Yeah, there's studies now in certain subgroups of patients that 10 years is better than five years. And that's about, um, that's really about, um, again, managing not just the hot flashes, which I mentioned, but other important side effects such as the aromatase inhibitor anti-estrogen medications can cause joint pain. Exercise is important in terms of preventing that. Acupuncture has been shown to be helpful. So it's about asking the patients on those routine follow-up visits during those five to 10 years of anti-estrogen medication. We see them every three to six months addressing those issues. So including um, some of the medications can cause bone loss. so We need to monitor bone density. Again, exercise is very important in preserving bone density. Sometimes we need to give bone strengthening agents if we're giving an anti-estrogen medication that's harming the bone. So it's about m- monitoring bone density, um, libido, sexual side effects, vaginal dryness, um, attending to those mm-hmm. issues as well, which are really you know, unfortunate and Common side effects of these women, and again, some of these are very young women. The other important part, which I think is interesting, is that as the issue with of childbearing in the setting of breast cancer, and that's. Can I, can
0: I just? Oh, sure. One second interruption. So I just want to, before you go into childbearing, yeah. which is really important, let's talk about the age percentages of breast cancer. So if we're talking about childbearing, we're talking about young women. Yeah. And so what percentage are in their 20s, 30s, like how do you... A very small
1: percentage are in their their 20s and 30s. And um, those patients who have genetic predispositions to developing breast cancer, which Julia probably spoke to you about mm-hmm. it this this morning. They tend to present at earlier ages, but that's a small proportion okay. of patients. Breast cancer is a disease of increasing age generally. I think that at you know major academic medical centers we see more young women because they're coming for trials or they're coming for uh, a special a breast specialist um, more specialized care. But I'd say the majority of women that we see are in their 50s, 60s. But we see you know there's there's an increasing number of younger patients and we don't know fully what that's due to, whether it's uh, delayed childbearing definitely is a risk factor for uh, developing breast cancer. and Delayed other.
0: meaning so later a, in
1: life. having a child after the age of 30 which is crazy, <laughs> actually increases the risk of developing breast cancer, yeah. where childbearing <laughs> under the age of 30 decreases the risk of developing breast cancer. Explain,
0: so, explain, that's Crazy. So tell
1: me about that. I don't know that we specifically know the real absolute reason for that. It's been an epidemiologic observation. You know, one would think that um, the way an older, and about 30 is older in any way, but experiences (laughs) the uh, large amount of hormones that are floating around Uh during pregnancy uh, may may be what increases risk.
0: And so having a child in your 40s or even in, Actually,
1: I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. small risk factor, but it, is, but it is a risk factor. So
0: I, I've always, I don't have children, and I've always heard that high risk, no children, bigger, bigger risk. Why is that?
1: No children is not a bigger risk than oh, having isn't. children after 30. No, really? it's not. It is for ovarian cancer, but not clearly for breast cancer. So in ovarian cancer... Uh, basically anything that interrupts ovulation decreases the risk. So pregnancies at any age are protective. It's very different, and that is because it's thought that during the trauma of ovulation um, that the lining uh, can grow back after the trauma of uh, extruding an egg and that in that repair of the surface, that that's when mutations and abnormalities can develop. Oh. So anything that interrupts ovulation, uh-huh. so any childbearing, oral contraceptives have been shown to be protective for um, ovarian cancer because they don't, women don't ovulate if they're mm. taking oral contraceptives. So uh, a kind of different set of so issues. The,
0: so. so I've had some revelations today about oral contraceptives and mm-hmm. that the negative... Concept of them is really sort of washing away. We're learning more about the extended use, and um, it's quite incredible to to see how much has changed. And you're talking to someone who used the copper coil (laughs) as (laughs) contraceptive in my early days. Yes. So. Tell me about abortion and breast cancer or any... Like if you, you're pregnant and you it bored, it doesn't, wouldn't necessarily relate or... I don't think
1: there's clear data that that yeah. increases the risk of developing breast cancer. Or not that it
0: increases, but maybe I, I had it in my head somewhere that by getting pregnant, you sort of create... Uh, more positive up, but I guess you have to take it through the full term. Yeah. yeah. Wow, you have like a ton of information. <laughs> My head is spinning. So, as far as these incredible changes that are happening and the the research, where is like uh, in the seventies? I remember we are going to end cancer. We're going to end cancer in this time in this world, so the 70s, then in the 80s. We are going to end cancer, 90s, 2000, da 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 here we are, 2020, and we still have cancer. Is it that the cancer is evolving and changing, or is it that we still aren't moving as quickly, Quickly, and Will it ever come that cancer doesn't exist?
1: No, I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. But there's huge, huge advantages in curing people and for people living longer even with advanced cancer. So cancer is a much, much more curable disease, but I don't think that we're ever going to be able to prevent the beginnings of accumulations of mutations. And I mean, I think as we understand more and more of what environmental issues may be involved or what, that we will maybe be able to decrease incidence, but I don't believe we're going to be able to eliminate the disease. So it's
0: basically as much as you can do lifestyle, as much as you can do in getting checkups and
1: Early detection, gene, right?
0: G- g- checking your gene, whatever, profile. profile. Um, but basically, there's no vaccine. <laughs> is it
1: like, no? Well, there's the vaccine that helps decrease the risk of cervical That's cancer true. because that That's really true. is a viral disease. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, um, so if it's viral,
0: you yes, can understand yes, vaccine. Yes, but, yes. but I, I guess th- it's just, you know, this has been part of our when are we going to end cancer, but just in talking to you, so much has happened and is happening that it really is a better understanding of what cancer is about and how you solve the problem or get it right away or have... The tools to to act very quickly. Um. It's
1: truly amazing. And even in patients who, I have a big practice of advanced breast cancer patients or metastatic patients where the breast cancer has spread to bone, Mm -hmm. lung, liver. And we have such wonderful therapies that that used to be a death sentence in a relatively short period of time. And people are living with advanced disease for many years, good Mm. quality and quantity of lives. Yeah, so it's really incredibly rewarding to be able to keep people feeling well and living their lives and going to bar mitzvahs and weddings and whatever else you know that um it's it's such a rapidly changing field i can't even impart the exciting aspect of the reason that i love what i do so much is that literally every every couple of years there's exciting new drugs i can see yeah from what
0: you've said and um so One of the connections that I have with Julia is the belief that exercise, diet, and sleep are the best tools you have. Having a healthy lifestyle certainly can prevent a lot of issues, but it also can empower you when you do end up having to be challenged. Absolutely. And so... You're just the the conversation that you've had about exercise and how um, how wonderful that tool is. So I know that if you can start working out as a way to combat it, having a tool says so I'm going to fight this while well, you work out, and and it's something that you're doing to help yourself. And so, well, I told you about my blueberry walnut. <laughs> Which is so
1: delicious, yeah. by the way. Um, what do you just individually eat, or does there's no, some no, blending? No, no, no. Okay. So <laughs>
0: I, I just get a cup of blueberries and I grind up yeah. the walnuts and in mix it, it together. And mix it together, and the crunchy. I can't explain it, but it's a good I'm combo. Try it. I'm a huge
1: blueberry fan. Oh well, myself, then but. it's great. You're gonna love it with
0: the walnuts. <laughs> um, but is there anything else from a, a diet perspective of stay away from fats, you know, excessive fats and the fats in the wrong? But um, Moderating alcohol intake. M- what, so I was actually going, you've read <laughs> my mind because Julia and I are big proponents of like, why, why even drink? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point? Yeah. If you know it's not good for you don't do it. I mean, the idea of one glass of wine a day sounded really good, and it is... But it's... I just don't think something that gives you a headache and makes you look bad in the morning is good for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, am, I agree with you, and I agree with Julia. On the other hand, I'm not, not um, suggesting that people drink, but there are cardiovascular benefits, and I think that some people... Um, Drinking very moderately, use it as a way to control stress, not that that's the best way to control stress, but I think stress reduction can also decrease Mm. the risk of a lot of different diseases as well. So, But moderating whatever the person does, stepping back and moderating that, that is what Uh, I mean. I think
0: one of the things that um, we do here at 1230 every day, we meditate, and it started last New Year's because in our we have a year-end sort of what's your New Year's resolution meeting. Nice. And so a lot of people said they wanted to meditate. And so I have a woman come in here every day at 12.30 and people who want to come every up day. and meditate come up. And um, I think it's an incredible stress reducer. And I think women... Um, hold all of their stress right here. Stomach, chest. Another thing is, and I'm curious about your um, reaction to this, I became very good friends with Horst. He developed Aveda. And he sold Aveda for billions of dollars and decided to do research on how beauty products were affecting women's health. And I used to wear red lipstick and red nail polish every day. It was my, oh, my thing. Well, he showed me, and he couldn't get any of it published. None of the fashion magazines, because the advertisers are all beauty. And, like, right, and right, so, right. anyway, he showed me this article, and I, like, not it, no, you see, I'm not wearing <laughs> nail polish, I'm not wearing lipstick. And he, it chilled me right out on even thinking about it. But he also um, talked about the amount of lipstick we consume in a year. Each woman cons- consumes pounds of lipstick. And he kept doing this. It goes to your breasts. It goes to your breasts. And I think there's a lot of work needing to be done. Everybody is very clear now. They want clean, organic, natural, but the bottom line is we want safe. I still believe with all of that desire for products that are safe, I don't think the beauty industry is really looking at everything and taking responsibility for the harm it can do for women. So we know just pesticides and hormones and foods and all of these things are not good for us. But I really do believe besides the stress that we take into our chests, I do think we need to individually be very careful about what we're putting on our bodies what we put on our mouths, I literally, as you can see, have no, I'm, I'm so anti putting anything on my mouth unless I know it's made from plants or something that is edible and, you know, in another zone. So I've become very consciously aware of that. And obviously, it's something that my new normal life is going to be dedicated to giving women opportunities to find choices and sub- because we want to dress up yeah. we want yeah. like we want all of that but i uh, is there any information that you
1: know about about the some of the products we use you know i it's, it it makes a lot of sense and it's very interesting but i haven't seen specific literature really and maybe it's not being published, but I haven't seen specific literature with yeah. regard to If
0: you ever do, I would love to sure. see what that is, because I just think it so, makes so much sense. We, we little, I'm biting my lips all day long doing this, and mm-hmm. then I eat, and, mm-hmm. and so I'm swallowing my lipstick right. with if I'm wearing lipstick. So that certainly makes some sort of sense, Absolutely, but we need to think about that. And I think that there is more we can do just to look at all the different factors and stress being obviously one of the big ones, and looking at our immune system and everything we can do to boost our immune system. Yeah, I mean,
1: this isn't clearly been shown to be the mechanism, but I believe that, you know, stress has a big effect on the immune system. So, you know, things like exercise, again, back to exercise, Mm -hmm. I think is a great stress reducer but also things like massage or Absolutely. Th- things like that you know so
0: i i think massage is critically important i think stretching okay. i think breathing meditation all of these things are really important i also think i'm i'm using some of the products that i'm doing to kind of initiate behavior so some of, the like a cleanser I have is charcoal and aloe and it you put it on dry skin. So I say, whether it's my product or any other, it doesn't matter, take the time before you go in the shower to massage your entire body. Take that time to create self-love for yourself. Do it in the morning, do it in the evening, a couple of minutes here and there so simple it's subliminal but not only does it help our self-esteem but giving love to yourself people then feel they give want to give love to you too and there's a, a power in that that i think is part of this immune back to my goal of building the immune system I really believe it and I and I think the more we do those things for ourselves even a manicure but with nail polish that doesn't have toxic stuff so you can go buy some really good nail polishes that aren't toxic you take it with you have a manicure pedicure and then get your head and neck massage while you're doing it like that extra thing it's better than buying a dress it's better and here I am a fashion designer saying (laughs) better than buying a dress but I believe it because the experience of having that release of stress and tension and it also then helps you have a good night's sleep and that restorative sleep that's taking every cell and just giving it a little hug and you're restoring and you're ready for the next day. You're dealing with, you're washing away that whatever that day was about and it's you wake up in the morning and uh, okay, give it to me. I'm yes. ready to take you on and I, I think it's not complicated but knowing all that you said which is heavy stuff like super heavy we we had a heavy conversation here with some brilliant information and that the simplicity of some of the things you can do
1: i'm a big believer i don't know if it decreases breast cancer risk of mani petty massages and getting a lot of sleep you just know yeah. how it makes your organism feel it's yeah. how you feel when you haven't had enough sleep Compared to I mean and, and, and you know mm. your body resets with massage, yeah. I, you know so and and from the time you wake
0: up in the morning, you start thinking about your behavior so that when it 's time to go to sleep, you have a good night 's sleep. The mistake is everybody thinks they put their head on the pillow okay duh i 'm ready not really you 're still wired yeah. you know, like there 's a, a process of. Are you going to have another cup of coffee? Do you really right. need that cup of coffee? Because you're not going to sleep tonight. Are you going to... You just had a big stressful call. You know what? Go into the bathroom. Shut off the light. Put the lid down and meditate. Take a couple of minutes. Nobody's going to know what you're doing in there. and right. take Do it. I mean, there's all these little tricks that you can play so that when it's time to go to sleep, you actually restore and sleep so amy my god I, I mean what you laid on the table today was just exhilarating, exciting, intense I mean every I, I was i'm just overwhelmed by the powerful information, and I thank you so much for sharing. I definitely want to put together some panels so we can do question and answers with people and i'm that would be so great. happy that I can introduce you this way so everybody knows your gig and what <laughs> what you do but it's it's really so wonderful and how wonderful of you to pick this as your life plan your your job I have to say many times through the years I would think and say, I'm worried about a quarter of an inch on a ham and people are curing cancer. And here you are, my nemesis that I love you for. It. I absolutely do. And so the least I can do is at least make sure I share whatever information so that what you're doing can really be... Used and informed and celebrated. So, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you
1: so much for having what me. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to so. meet you
0: too.